But that's what we've been taught to do is give up control when really what we all should be doing, especially now more than ever, and we talked about this offline, but we need to learn to take back control. So here's that one change. So if what we do is we've learned our whole lives how to go out and make money, how to be a, you know, a good employee, so to say, we, we've learned how to go out, work for money. We've never been taught how to make our money. This that I'm holding in my hand, the $20 bill. We've never learned how to make this $20 bill work for us. So it starts with one change, adding one step, and that is simply where the money goes first. What's going on, guys? This is the Passive Wealth Strategy Show. Thank you for tuning in. Today, our guest is Chris Noggle from the Flip Out Academy and the Money Multiplier and so many other things. We talk about a couple of things today. First off, we talk about the one thing that separates the ultra powerful, the ultra wealthy, the high net worth individuals who accumulate and preserve wealth over time from the middle class and lower class who have a harder time accumulating and preserving that wealth. And I'll leave it at that. We get into it. You'll understand once we get into it. We also talk about his expectations for the market moving forward, what he sees in the future coming our way and so much more. Again, you're gonna, you're, you'll learn more when we get into it. He's starting a hedge fund, a private hedge fund, and we talk about the strategy and the motivation behind starting that fund and why they're getting into it, he and his partner and, and everybody that's involved there. If you're new to the show and you're not yet subscribed, take a second, go to your favorite podcasting app, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, hit the subscribe button, and that way you'll get every new episode straight to your mobile device. If you do use Apple Podcasts and you enjoy the show, please take a quick second, go to that app, look up the Passive Wealth Strategy Show, give us a rating and review, five stars if you don't mind. That really helps us. It helps us get higher in the rankings that Apple sees that people are engaging with the show and learning more. It helps me because I get to read the nice things that you guys say, and I appreciate it so much. And I also get to learn the things that you like and the things that you want to hear by reading those reviews. So appreciate it all around and very helpful. If you're looking for a way to thank us, you know, I get sometimes I get folks emailing me asking, asking me that an Apple podcast review is really the best way. It's free. It takes you 30 seconds and it's greatly appreciated. I'm your host, Taylor Lote. I'm a real estate investor, real estate syndicator. I buy real estate with passive investors and split the return. I love learning from guys like Chris. He's he's done so many things. Serial, serial entrepreneur. I had TV shows and flipped a bunch of real estate and has so many investment businesses going on right now. It's really impressive. And he did even more before that. And great to talk to him. Great to learn from him. And you're going to learn from him today. So without any further ado, here we go with Chris Donkle. Chris, thank you for joining us today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much. Um, happy to talk with you. Yeah, we've been chatting here a little bit. And I said, you know, we got to hit the record button. You have so many awesome things to say. Before we dive into it, can you tell our listeners a bit about your background, all the awesome businesses that you have going on, you know, what you do generally? Sure. I always start out, you know, I'm just a normal guy from a very lower, lower middle class family. Mom raised me. Dad was an alcoholic. So I didn't really have things growing up. I just had a, a big dream. And I had a mother who always taught me, always chase your dream. And, you know, that landed me as an entrepreneur when I was 16. I, I hated the job I had at the restaurant. So I, I quit trading hours for dollars at a young age and started a clothing line in mom's basement, which turned into a skateboard snowboard shop by the time I was 17, turning 18, in which my mom, because we had no other way, my mom had to make a hard decision to put her house on the line. 
so that I could actually get the loan for this, this fat man, this fat man skate shop. And my big dream growing up, I, I just wanted to be a professional snowboarder and living in Buffalo. That was a very tall task because there's no mountains here. People said I was crazy and I just did what everybody was unwilling to do. And, you know, so like the whole basis is like, I've always been a dreamer. I've been somebody that takes an idea and just literally fixates everything I've got on it until it just happens. And, you know, as you know, that's a universal law and it's a perfect example. But that landed uh, in the early 2000s. I was a pro snowboarder. I was running my skateboard snowboard shops. I had a couple of them at the time. And then the great, the, the first dot-com crash hit, you know, the first recession of my life that I remember and it forced me back into the working field and getting a job. And I landed in Wall Street, of all places for a punk snowboard kid to get. <laughs> I landed in Wall Street. And what was supposed to be a temporary thing, I remember, I'll never forget it. And truth be told, like it was either I was going to deliver pizza with, with Little Caesars, because my friend worked there, or I was going to be a financial advisor. And I just said, well, let's try this Wall Street thing. I think I had watched that Michael Douglas Wall Street one too many times. And I got really good at it. And some things changed during that. I started making, you know, good money in my first year. I made 70 grand, which is more than it ever made in the snowboard shops. And I said, you know, I got to stick to this. I really like this. So I started working on my retail stores while working in Wall Street. And that continued on to 08. I flipped a couple houses because I watched those shows in 23 minutes. You could, you know, flip a house and we all know that that doesn't happen. By 2008, I was one of the top advisors in the firm I was at. I was making really, really good money. You know, I had a little bit of arrogance going on because I came from nothing and I felt like I was making it. So I bought this big old dilapidated paint store and I was going to convert it into a strip mall, borrowed money from a hard money lender. And this is in 08. I don't know if I mentioned that, but, uh, you know, there's a right and a wrong time for things. And boy, did I get that wrong. The Great Recession hit, brought me to my knees. My girlfriend had to help me pay the mortgage, the utilities, move friends into my house to help pay things. But I made it through. And after that, some things changed. I dove into real estate because Warren Buffett said, buy low, sell high and don't lose money. And real estate was cheap. So I got up to 36 units and in 14, lost it all again. Some bad decisions, some lack of knowledge, just got a little too leveraged and had to sell everything. It was the lowest point in my life, but also sometimes when we're at the lowest point is when we're willing to receive and see things for what they really are. And I started to realize that I was doing things wrong and I didn't know what. And I met, uh, I went to a three-day seminar because they were giving away an iPod shuffle and I met two really successful guys who became personal friends and mentors, but they started talking about money. And remember, I was a big advisor. Like, you know, I I don't want to say a big time, but I was pretty high up the, the pecking order. And I heard these guys talking about money and it was the complete opposite of every single thing I'd ever been taught about money my entire life. And it made me question everything, maybe question the ups and downs I had, maybe question what I was doing, what I was learning, how I handled money for my clients. And from that time, that was 2014, that hard moment, I dove in and I literally made my life's mission around following multimillionaires and billionaires. And that was masterminds everywhere I could be around somebody that, you know, had, you know, substantial wealth. I was there and I just was a sponge. And I'd always ask them, you know, what they did with money. And how they handled money. And I saw these patterns during this process. And those patterns were so blatantly obvious that all these guys, almost like they all had the secret society and they were just like, uh, all of us have to do the same thing. They were all doing the same darn thing. And when I boiled it down and I really started figuring this out and putting pieces together, I realized it was so simple. All they did was changed one thing, added one step to, to what they did 
that was different than what we do. And that kind of makes the baseline of where I'm at today. I mean, we had a, me and my wife had a show on HGTV in our big flipping days. We flipped hundreds of houses. You know, I'm known as America's number one money mentor. And I, that is not self-proclaimed. Please, folks, don't think I came up with that. And it's just sometimes someone calls you something and it just sticks. And that's what happened. And that's what I do today. I teach people the truth about money, uh, what the wealthy do. And I show people how to map out the millionaire mystery. Nice. So I would be remiss if I didn't, you know, drill into what that one thing is that is the difference. I mean, it's a little hard to believe, right? That it's just, oh, it's one thing. It's just one thing we got to change, but presumably it's a really big idea or it's tough to implement. I don't know. What is it? No, it's, it's actually so simple that as soon as I tell everybody and tell you what it is, you will say that sounds too good to be true. That must be a scam. But the fact of the matter is, is that one change, which I'll get into in a sec, I'll make it very simple. has been, I didn't invent this. I didn't come up with this. They didn't come up with this. It's been around hundreds of years and it's been used by all the wealthiest families from the Rockefellers to the Rothschilds to Walt Disney, Ray Kroc, all the way up to modern times to, you know, Joe Biden, Pampered Chef, Warren Buffett, they all have used the same system. And it's nothing more than a banking system. The wealthy have figured this out. Now, let me give you a little baseline, then I'll dive into that one thing. The wealthy figured out that banks are really smart, first off. And what banks do different than us is they are in the business of moving money. But they don't move their own money. They move somebody else's money. And, and what they do is they've gotten very good at that of making money on these moves that they do. So the baseline is what wealthy do is move money. What you, me, and everybody else when I was an advisor does is teach people to give up control of their money. They, you know, we, we're taught to take this money that we work really hard for and give up control, whether that be putting it into a bank where the bank then uses our money, putting it into Wall Street where somebody else is managing it or you're, you're not in control of the money, something else is in control, or our various sources, employer-sponsored retirement plans. But that's what we've been taught to do is give up control when really what we all should be doing, especially now more than ever, and we talked about this offline, but we need to learn to take back control. So here's that one change. So if what we do is we've learned our whole lives how to go out and make money, how to be a, you know, a good employee. So to say, we, we've learned how to go out, work for money. We've never been taught how to make our money. This that I'm holding in my hand, the $20 bill. We've never learned how to make this $20 bill work for us. So it starts with one change, adding one step. And that is simply where the money goes first. So let's just, let's just pick on a bank account, right? I take this $20, I go into the bank, I give it to the bank teller. The bank teller takes my money. Do they put it in a little box in the back with my name on it? No, they take this money and they move that money and they make interest on that money. Now, what if I just changed where that money went? Because banks don't pay a very good interest rate. Matter of fact, if anyone's putting money in banks, you're losing every single day to a thing called inflation, which is a hidden tax. Your money is becoming weaker and weaker every day, but the bank is making money on your money. You're not. So what if we just had a place where this $20 bill could go first and then that would change it and at least keep pace with inflation, but give us control. What if there was a place where we could park that $20 or any dollar amount and that place would pay us a guaranteed 4%. Now, let me ask you, do you know any banks or any place that you can put money that will give you a guaranteed 4% on it? Not these days. 
Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what I always thought, even not, even back when interest rates were higher. But you know who has been paying guaranteed returns on money and, guarantee, and providing guarantees for hundreds of years successfully? None other than the largest, most successful financial institutions in the world. And those are mutually owned insurance companies, giant mutually owned insurance companies. So what if I could take this money, just like the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds, and instead of putting it in a traditional bank, I could take it and I put it into an insurance company. And that insurance company then said, we'll give you a guaranteed 4% and they'll give me a contract stating that. Most of you would look at that and say, well, okay, so do I just walk into the insurance company and give them my money? They'd laugh at you. They'd laugh at you. They, they wouldn't even know what the heck you're talking about. You see, this isn't done with a deposit account, but it kind of is. It's done with a vehicle you all know about, you've all heard about, and you all probably think negatively about it because, you know, the problem in America is not what people don't know. The problem in America is what people think they know that just ain't so. And that is a whole life insurance policy. Now, as soon as I say that, everybody's like leaning back. They're like, oh, God, here we go. I've heard about those. Those are a terrible place. And you know what? You're right. It's exactly what I thought when I first heard about this because I thought I knew. And I was an advisor. I knew all about whole life. It was a terrible place to put money if you wanted to make money on your money. That's what I thought of it. But you see, this is not a regular whole life. You don't go into the insurance store and buy a whole life and have it do what I'm about to tell you. This is a very specially designed and engineered whole life that I got to call it for what it is. It's traditionally called privatized banking, but it is a whole life at the core because a whole life and an insurance company are the only ones that can pay you that kind of guaranteed return. But now let me go one step further. And I, I want to keep this very simple. It's just picture a big circle, right? So all I did is I changed one thing. I changed where this money went first. It's sitting in this very specially designed and engineered whole life, very much like how banks use whole life. And if you want to you know, test my stuff and see if I'm telling the truth, go in and Google Boli, B-O-L-I. Look at hundreds of pages of who the number one purchaser of these types of whole life policies are, and you'll see none other than traditional banks. They own more whole life than they do all the land and buildings combined. So either banks are stupid or they know something we don't know. Okay, I got my $20 in this insurance com- or this insurance policy, okay? And it's paying me 4% plus their mutuals, so they pay me dividends. So in 2021, we're making anywhere between 5 and 6% on that money with dividends. But now that doesn't solve my problem because I've still not I still don't feel like I have control of this money because it's just sitting there. It's making enough money to keep pace with inflation. But now what if the insurance company in a contract said, "You know, Chris, anytime you want to access that money, you could just log on, click a button, and you can take a loan from the insurance company. And the insurance company will give you a loan against your $20, okay? And it's not really a loan against your $20. Your $20 stays in your account, never leaves. The insurance company loans you a portion. It depends on what stage you're at with the policy, but let's just pick on year one, day one, okay? I put the 20 bucks there. 30 days later, I click that button in, online, no credit checks, no questions, just how much do you want? Great. I want the maximum amount. And the insurance company says, great. And depending on how it's designed, it will give you 60 to 90%. So let's use, it doesn't matter. Let's just use uh, out of $20. Let's pick a number. Let's take uh, 15 bucks. I should have used 10. Let's use $15 of that money. So I'm going to take that $15 in, that the insurance company gave me. Now I'm holding $15. My $20 is still in my account earning 4% plus dividend. So how did I get $15? Where did that come from? Well, the insurance company gave me a loan from their general account because that's where all their money sits. And they want to make interest on that. So they gave me a loan. And on that loan, they charged me interest. 
And right now the interest is between 4.7 and 5%. So now I'm paying interest of 5%. Let's just keep the math simple. But let's say I'm earning six. So I'm making a spread of 1% for having that money in my hand. But loans normally have to be paid back. But this $15 I'm holding in my hand, what if the insurance company said, you know, Chris, you don't ever have to pay that 15 bucks back. I'd be like, really? Oh my God, where do I send like the chocolates? And like, this is great. I don't have to pay this back. The insurance company says, no, 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 you don't have to pay that back because all we're going to do is in our computer, we're going to subtract $15 from that guaranteed debt benefit that we promised to pay upon your graduation date. And I don't mean high school or college, I mean the big graduation. So you're taking an advance of your death benefit and your cash that you deposited is acting as collateral. So that's, so now if you follow what I just did, I'm making money on my 20 bucks, but I'm holding most of it in my hands. Now the question is, what do I do with this $15? And, and again, folks just kind of go with the numbers. It's just hypothetical. I take the $15 and I look at where all my money goes every single month and I, I hone in on an Amex bill. And I got this Amex card that I owe $15 to. And Amex is charging me every single month, five bucks in interest. Okay. And that five bucks is the 29.99% interest that they charge us. So I take my 15 and I pay off Amex and I just say, all right, I don't want to pay Amex anymore. But that $5 that I used to give to Amex, which was the equivalent of a 29.99% interest rate. What if I still continue to make that $5 payment, but I changed the name on the check and I write bank of noggle. And now every month I set up a bill pay and I have that $5 go back into my banking policy. And all I do is I repay the loan that I took from my bank. You see, the money started over here with that one change. And that money now is earning uninterrupted compound interest. But now I have control and access to use that money anytime I want. Because the insurance company says you can take a a loan against your death benefit anytime you want up to the amount you have in cash. And I take that loan and I go out and I use it. Pay off Amex, pay off my car loan and pay off anything and then take the money that I was giving to somebody else's bank and I pay it back to mine. I just made money twice. I made the spread, the arbitrage on my, you know, six minus the five. Plus I recaptured the 29.99 I was given to Amex. How many times can you do this in your life with the different things you do? I use it today for private lending. I use it to buy real estate and also I use it to buy cars. So we have beautiful cars and I get all the money back for every single car that I buy, drive and own because I'm the bank and because I'm literally treating my money the same as I used to treat the bank's money. And I just recycle and recapture every dollar of money that I used to give away to the bank. Sorry, I went long, but I wanted to take you full circle. So you saw that that's what that works. Now take that and add lots of zeros behind it and you can do amazing things with this. Nice. Now, one of the things I wonder about this is that, you know, this is the thing that separates, you know, the the regular folks from the ultra wealthy. You have to be at the point where you're considered, you know, ultra wealthy to break into it or for for it to even make sense to get into. Or is it, uh, you know, great question. Good for the busy, you know, regular Joe out there. Well, it's always been reserved for the wealthy just because they're the only ones that knew about this because the average person wasn't taught this because in order to do what I just said, and have access to 60 to 90%, somebody has to give up something. And what they have to give up is their commission. So in order to do that, specially designed and engineered whole life, that agent or, you know, that money uh, mentor, if you, that's what we call them, would have to give up 60 to 90% of their compensation so that you have access to it. So that's why it's always been the wealthy. But then you say, well, where's the threshold? Like who can use this? Well, pretty much anybody, but there are, it's not for everybody. It's not the silver bullet. This isn't the fix all folks. I want to be very clear. So, In order to start this, simple rule, we've done thousands of these plans for people. 
the general rule is take your age. I'm 43. Multiply it times 10. That means $430. That's my minimum monthly amount I could deposit into one of these and actually have it work. So 10 times your age is the minimum. So whatever age somebody is, just do that math. And that's how much it takes to start one of these. Hmm. Okay. So that's the minimum deposit to get started. And then how long till you can uh, start taking that cash back out and immediately, immediately. I always say immediately in the first 30 days, but the truth of the matter is, is as soon as your check clears. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. Remember it's, it's built totally different than you've ever seen a whole life. And you know, my, I, you know, Dave Ramsey, somebody I admire tremendously. I think he does wonderful things for people, but he hates whole life. He's a buy term, invest the different or invest the, yeah, the difference. And I like that strategy, but he doesn't fully understand how this works. Cause I've listened to him try to debunk this and he's so wrong in how he explains it. It's just so many people, even some of the smartest minds don't understand how this works because they've never done their due diligence to really dive in and see that it's not about the whole life. Like I know everybody wants to focus on the whole life, but really what did we actually do there? Yes, we use the whole life as a machine to move your money because it was efficient because it paid you uninterrupted compound interest plus all the gains are tax-free. But really what we did there is a process of just banking. All we did is we took back the banking functions in our lives. Instead of paying monthly payments to Amex, we paid them to ourselves. Instead of paying monthly payments to Bank of America for the car loan, we make that same monthly payment back to ourselves. Instead of borrowing money from someone and lending it out to somebody, we use our own bank. We just became the bank. That's all we did there. And we mimicked exactly what a traditional bank does day in and day out with your money you deposit there. You just took it back to your in your control. Hmm. Interesting. Cool. And that works for 401k loans and HELOCs. And you can use this system in the strategy a lot of ways. But, you know, one thing you mentioned, if I may, one thing that's very important to understand here is a lot of people think about that and they're like, oh, my head hurts. Like I couldn't do all that. And we know that. So like as a company, one thing that we've done is built that whole back end banking. So we actually track that for all of our people. We you know, when, when all that loan stuff's going out, you take a loan and you recapture it. We track all that. We do all that work for our people because that's the hardest part. It's so different than what we've been taught about money that it's difficult to kind of just dive in and say, oh, I got this. It's a learning curve. It's like learning to ride a bike. Well, I don't want to, you know, I, I want to shift gears a little bit, at least while we've got you to discuss something that you and I were talking about uh, before we hit record as well. And the hedge fund that you're starting and yeah. where you expect the market to go over the next couple of years. Let's break into that a little bit and, you know, why you're starting this fund and then, you know, what your expectations are moving forward. Sure. So we're starting a private hedge fund. It's, it's not open to the public. It's just myself, one other investor, and then our two full-time traders. And the reason we're starting it is not because it's cool to say we have a hedge fund, but it's because we want to beta test an algorithm that we've created and that we've been working with for many years that the algorithm is nothing special. Special. It's just a very high frequency trading algorithm that requires active, continuous trades based on certain points. And the cool thing about the hedge fund and what we're doing, and I think pretty much all hedge funds do something similar, but they usually get so big and they're dealing with outside money that they're constantly forced to take on additional risks because they're always trying to make better returns. Where us, because it's just our money, we can control that. Kind of in control of my money is a big thing for me. So the hedge fund is a beta test so that we can see that right now in the market conditions, we are at the top, top, top of this market cycle. If you don't believe me, that's fine, but we're at the top, okay? 
anyone you listen to will tell you that's where we're at. And if we can build this algorithm and we can use it at the top of the market and we can see how it does at the top and when it continues to go up. But then what we're going to have is going to be very unique to test this thing. And we're only testing it with our own personal money is we're going to be able to test this thing in what we know and well, we think and pretty much know mathematically will work is when this whole market deflates or falls apart or, you know, whatever you want to say, crashes, there's a lot of words for it. Then we're going to see how this thing performs in a very severe down or bear market. And that is the most important thing we can test because think of like any kind of test, you know, it's easy to test something in a current time, but how often do you get these strong bear markets? Well, every seven to 10 years, but this is almost 12 years now since the last one in 2008. So we're going to be able to test this thing in one of the most violent, scary, aggressive downturns in probably our lifetime. I hate to say it that way, but unfortunately, you know, what I'm talking about is not, um, I guess some of it's a matter of opinion, but it's not opinion. It's just timing. I might be off on the time because what I know is coming is coming, whether you think it or not, whether you believe it or not. I'm not saying that because I know I'm so smart. I say that because it's just patterns. It's history. And if you just follow history and you study economics and you listen to, you know, lots, not don't ever just listen to one economist. Holy crap. You might just go jump off a bridge if you did that. But if you listen to a lot of them and you take bits and pieces of all of them and you put them into, I don't want to call it like a, a formula, but if you really look at it and you lay it over, all the data is the same thing said a different way. And it all spells that this whole thing will crash and burn as early as the end of 2021. But I think that's not going to happen. I think 2022 into 2023, it lets loose. And I hate to say that I'm not a doomsdayer. Believe me, I'm an eternal optimist, but it is coming, folks. And if you're not ready for it, it's going to hurt severely. Think of the 1929 Great Depression. Yeah, that's what this is going to look like with a sprinkle of the early 2000.com crash and maybe a little smidgen of 2008, but the real estate should be fairly okay. And this hedge fund gives me the ability to test this in this violent cycle. And if it works after two years of doing this, we haven't lost all of our money and it works like we think it will. We have literally just found something that not many other people have found or been able to do because just simply timing. We just are doing this at the right time. Nice. So one of the, I'd like to understand the reasoning behind, you know, why you expect such a, a, a tremendous Certainly. crash. I mean, we saw when COVID hit, we saw the willingness of the treasury and the federal reserve to run the printers forever, although we kind of already knew that. And that hasn't changed. Debt is at, you know, high extreme levels, right? And any crash moving forward, I think we can expect to be met with extreme monetary stimulus. Just why is that your your expectation? So it really has nothing to do with the government printing money. They've done the same thing through every recessionary period, just bigger numbers now, you know, and, and more aggressive and faster movements than they did back in 29 and 70s and all the different uh, times they've used, you know, monetary policy. But really what it comes down to is there's a 90-year cycle, there's the traditional 7 to 10-year cycle, and then there's another cycle in the middle. And all of these cycles are all converging at almost the exact same time. So it's really just a historical cyclical pattern all coming together. So it has nothing to do, you know, a lot of people like, oh, it's politics. It has nothing to do with politics. It does not. Politics will prolong it, which I think we're still, we're prolonged right now because of all the stimulus. They'll prolong it. They'll push it. It might shorten the duration of it. But the problem is, is there's nothing that can stop this. Truly. Will, will monetary policy, the printing presses and all of that, 
ease and soften the blow or prolong it. That's all it's doing. It's literally like every time there's a problem, the government prints more money, creates a new problem, but it's just kicking the can. And so I agree with you. The government has done a great job or a terrible job. However you look at it, I would say it's a good job, you know, with what they did in March. Because that drop, even though we knew it was going to stop where it did at about 19, it should have went down to 16 or lower. But it didn't because of these these policies. And then the market has rallied back up, which I call this the bull trap. And, you know, it's very typical of government, you know, policy like this. They print a bunch of money. It rockets it back up. Some things going on right now just make no bloody sense. But it's okay. But really, you just have to understand that the government and the printing is being done right now to, you guys all know what inflation is. It's basically they print money. It makes your dollars worth less. It's a hidden tax. The government is trying to create massive amounts of inflation right now. Why would the government want to create inflation? Well, simply because the government's severely in debt. And if they can pay back those debts with weaker dollars and, and easier money, then they will. And that's what inflation will do. It actually helps the government tremendously. The other reason the government's doing this is the government knows what I know and what other economists know is coming. And the government is really trying to hit the main problem, which is not inflation. The main problem is deflation. We will be in a deflationary period, and the government is trying to stop that or push that back. And eventually, you can pull all the levers the government has. You know, the interest rate lever has been maxed out. We're almost at zero, right, with interest rates. So that lever's been pushed. Then the printing press lever, that's the one that they're using now, the MMT, modern monetary theory, print your way out and stimulate the economy. But eventually, when you do that, you devalue the dollar so severely that eventually what's happening right now happens. You put so much money into the economy, people get scared because of what's possibly coming or not coming that they start saving money. Oh, God forbid we save more money. That's not good. People save money means they're not spending money, which basically is what creates deflation. And lastly is just if you just look at what's happening in the markets, I mean, there is a cap. You can't have everything just keep going to the moon and running and running and running. We're in a bubble. Different asset classes will be bubbled because of what's going on. And eventually, every balloon that you blow up, if you keep blowing it up, it has to pop. It's just normal and it's healthy. So I agree with what you're saying. I'm sorry I went long into that, but there's more. There's not just one thing. It's a series of things. But really, it just comes down to it's just a pattern. It's very normal in cycle. It's not going to be pretty, but the government's doing everything they can to push it off, which is why... You know, some are saying 2021. I'm thinking 2023 because credit is so easy right now and there's just so much money floating around. Yeah. It's crazy times. We live in, we live in interesting yeah, times. I hope I didn't go too far down the rabbit hole and I hope I didn't, you know, upset anybody. I'm just trying to kind of give you some wisdom on what I know and, you know, you can act on it or not, but there's very easy ways to play into this. Nice. Right now we're going to take a quick break for our sponsor. All right, Chris, I've got three questions. I ask every guest on the show. Perfect. Are you ready? Always. Great. First one, what is the best investment you ever made other than in your education? Best investment I ever made is in people and my staff and my culture. Nice. I'd love to learn more about that sometime. You, we discussed previously about some of the awesome teams that you guys have built. There's so much more going on than, you know, just the, the hedge fund that we discussed and your, your partnerships there. And that's really awesome. I'd love to learn more about that in the future. We had the best investment. Now we go to the worst investment. What is the worst investment you ever made? Always cars. <laughs> Was Just there one in particular? Honest. Oh, gosh, Audis. <laughs> Any of the Audis I've owned, they're always a terrible investment. 
especially those S4s that like to blow. Uh, yeah, the B, yeah. <laughs> Don't even get me started with the 270. There it is. The yellow 270, the worst Audi I've ever bought. Gorgeous car, though. It was. It was. My favorite question here at the end of the show is, what is the most important lesson you've learned in business and investing? The most important lesson is very simple, and it is the lesson of giving. The one thing that has transformed everything I've done is when I stopped thinking about me and I started thinking about others and I started giving, giving, giving. And I don't always mean just money. I mean time, helping other people solve their problems. And that is the biggest lesson that I learned and the biggest lesson I can share. It's just a hard one for a lot of people to wrap their head around. Nice. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining us today, bringing us all these important lessons, I think, for for both the future and for how a new way we can think about managing our money, managing our uh, our assets and cash flow. If folks want to reach out, if they want to get in touch with you, all that great stuff, where can they find you? Yeah, the best way is just uh, my website, chrisnoggle.com or YouTube. I put all my stuff out there for free. So go to the Chris Noggle on YouTube and subscribe. There's so much good stuff. Awesome. Well, thanks once again for joining us today. To everybody out there, thank you for tuning in. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a rating review on Apple Podcasts. It's very much appreciated and it helps other people learn about the show. If you know anyone who could use a little bit more passive wealth in their lives, please share the show with them and bring them into the tribe. I hope you have a great rest of your day and we'll talk to you on the next one. Bye-bye.